0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey. Today, I'm speaking with Dave Goss about his recent book, Abolition and Plantation Management in Jamaica, 1807 to 1838. Dave, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so I want to just start off uh, uh, kind of with the generalities around how you got to this project. And uh, your book looks really at the last three decades of slavery in Jamaica. And I'm curious what drew you to that particular time. In Jamaican history, and especially even to that particular time in the history of slavery.
1: Okay, thank you, um, Daniel. Well, this this book, actually, um, it was an outgrowth of my PhD thesis. Um, my my advisor, um, he is um, Professor Selwyn Carrington, and he, um, he did his work. One of his important books was actually On Decline, you know, about the decline thesis, this debate Um, between himself and Gresham regarding when the Caribbean plantation started to decline. Um, So seeing that he was my professor, uh, (laughs) I'm trying to get out of the the graduate school as quick as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, I decided to do something um, on the ending of slavery, but not going the direction that he went. So what drew me to the book, really, um, I wanted to test the relationship between plant, plantation management and productivity. Because as you know, um, in modern societies, management um, have a role in, um, in productivity of a company or not. And so if you look at the literature, um, historiography on abolition, you'll notice that it speaks about um, William's thesis: the economic reasons are the reasons for the decline of um, plantation slavery in the in the Caribbean. That's one factor. Then you talk about humanitarianism. That's the second school of thought. Then you look also on what what we call human agency: the role of um, um, rebellions ending slavery. But so far, nobody's uh, looked at the issue of what we want to call the role of management in abolition. And so I recognized that I had a kind of an edge um, that was a work uh, to be done. And so that's what led me um, to looking at, at the role of management, plantation management, um, in the early 19th century to see the extent to which management facilitated um, the decline or, or 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 you wanna say halted a decline um and that's what led me to look um at this particular um role of plantation management in plantation jamaica that's
0: great, yeah, and I think it might be helpful for listeners just to know have a sense of kind of the way the plantation is structured in case they don't know a lot about Jamaican plantations. And and so management is a as you sort of chart in your book, is a kind of complicated structure of people. And uh, right. could you just say a little bit about sort of the way the plantation would be structured and how that management was organized?
1: Yes. Well um okay so let me also put in context as well. that uh, Jamaica also know had the um in in the British Caribbean uh around a half of the um um enslaved people in the entire british caribbean was located in jamaica right so that's a significant um, backdrop now how the plantation was basically structured um, by the early 19th century um, you had what we call mainly um, um overseas owners for example in the earlier years of plantation work in, um, um in jamaica most of the owners lived in jamaica um to run their plantations uh, they made so much, so much money by then that many of them actually um, retired, retired um, in Europe. And what they did know, they now had um, persons running, called attorneys, running the plantations. right? Um, and so it is well documented that by that time period now, most of the planty, planters in Jamaica are, are actually um, not, not real owners, but steward management. And so I, when I looked at that, and below those persons now are other local um, persons who, who were helped in the running of the plant, plantations, for example, like bookkeeper. They would hire like a bookkeeper um, who, again, had nothing to do with the ownership, but he's hired. So plantations in Jamaica by the early 19th century had predominantly hired um, management staff And so what I found from my um, research, one of the findings from my research, was the very cumbersome management structure in that its owner resided overseas, generally. And even that, again, is problematic because sometimes, again, who really owned a plantation was also um, in dispute because there are many cases in, in Chancery to... Um, to, to, to decide for who really owns this plantation. Sometimes the owner happens to be a, a junior who could run the plantation, so it was, um, run, now, it was run by, by other um, persons again in Europe. And so, what I found out that there's a commercial management structure where whoever decides on what you call management policy in, in Europe. Um, Its execution was not necessarily done in the Caribbean, because in the Caribbean now, what we found was that the more promising um, attorney, they call them attorneys, because they have the legal right to sign on behalf of the owner. Some some attorneys um, had their own plantations, and some of them would even run like 10 or 15 plantations, so there's no way... You can be at all 15 plantations so sometimes again it is a junior manager actually deciding on a daily um, policy on the plantation and I, I made that point to say then that when it comes to setting managerial policy to its implementation um what i found was that there's a big gap and so that kind of halted Well, that's how that speeded up the level of decline on individual plantations. So what I studied then, I looked at, say, around 20 plantations, around 20 plantations, and what I actually did to study them, I looked on their quarterly um, reports of these local attorneys now who would write um, back to their um, owners overseas, telling them, what happened over the last three months. So I'm looking then um, on these quarterly letters which they are writing, and also the response sometimes of the owners. So when you, when you look at that, you can trace over the period of 30 years, the ebb and flow of managers in trying to, 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 um, to increase productivity. And what we find overall generally is that um, in the early 19th century, most of these plantations um, had low productivity, and you could actually trace the level of decline um, that was constant through the early 19th century. Predominantly, why? Because most of these plantations had absentee owners, and in a sense, absentee management, running these and they took decisions in their own interests and not necessarily in the interests of the owners. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I, we might want to return to that a little bit later, because that's a really important point in the, the middle of your book. Um, there's kind of an important context to this, and I think the reason why you started your book in 1807 is because in that year, England abolishes it's the Atlantic slave trade and so that obviously is a pretty crucial part of the context in which you're discussing these Japanese plantations so could you say a little bit more about what the abolition of the slave trade does for the plantation system
1: yes very 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 interesting point um daniel uh yes and you're right um i started the book by discussing um abolition that's why even the title book is even abolition because it is in the context of abolition That management now has to be um, restudied. In the Caribbean, by the early 19th century, um, as many persons know, that Britain abolished the slave trade in 1807, and there's a big dispute. Dispute why Britain did it. And my book, I didn't go into the reasons, but look at the reality of abolition. Abolition meant different things to different persons. In England. Um, the argument seemed to have been that by abolishing the slave trade you would force um, the planters like in the Caribbean to internally, internally um, reorient, reframe their management structure generally. But in the Caribbean the planters saw abolition as a threat to their own survival. Abolition then was supposed to be Coupled with what we call amelioration. And in the Caribbean now, then, that was a bad word, amelioration. Because many planters, who again were not real owners but hired hands, um, didn't believe in amelioration because they argue you can ameliorate um, an enslaved African um, because of a number of reasons. And so you could see we ideologically. The, whereas the owner of the, of the plantation would readily, would more readily accept ameliora- ameliora- um, abolition and amelioration, the hired hand in the Caribbean um, um, views both abolition and amelioration as a threat to their own economic survival. Because they too have ambitions as well to make as m- much money as quickly as possible and also retire um, to Europe. Um, so the book is cast in the context of abolition. Now that Britain had now abolished the slave trade and plants in the Caribbean now were now forced, now then, were being forced to ameliorate. They enslaved people to make them last longer. That was a challenge, and that is why the book is discussed in that context. Um, Where from 1807, or then, the regular pattern of buying an enslaved African um, for 50 pounds, 60 pounds, and then working him or her um, to death, Um, and then buying another one, when you abolish... The slave trade, you're you now saying to the plantation owners, take time with your enslaved Africans. Um, put in policies to make them live longer. Now, that is contrary to the management ethos at that time. And that's why I, I said that I had to study the ways in which you know, the plantation post 1807, um, had to change its management structure its its ideology, its practices to fit abolition and 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 they, they didn 't um, in a general sense, but there also no abolition also now, brought with it no other additional problems because externally externally Caribbean plantations were now um, um, facing severe external threats, for example um, you had what you want to call external economic problems where in the British Caribbean it was becoming harder to produce sugar cheaper because sugar was also was protected and there was a movement in England to now find cheaper sugar, right? So that again is a problem that the Caribbean planters are aware of and so they don't want to hear about abolition they don't want to hear about amelioration. They want to continue the same old way of um, producing sugar um, in a very expensive way and still have sugar protected. But the other problem we also faced now, then, external, externally, was that Britain and France competed against each other in terms of what is called the, the bounty. a called the bounty where, where when sugar is sent to England, it is now re exported to the rest of Europe. So, Britain needs cheaper and cheaper sugar, right? Um, But the Caribbean cannot produce cheaper and cheaper sugar. So, already I've seen a number of conflicts emerge in the cause of abolition. What England wants, what the refinery in England wants, is different from what the the persons in the colonies want. Because the the planters in the colonies, like Jamaica,
0: Okay, we had a little bit of a Skype break there, so I'm just going to come back in. Um, and Dave, you were talking about the, uh, the challenges because we have uh, politicians and activists and reformers in England who want a certain thing uh, and how the sort of planters and managers in Jamaica want something else. If you could just come back and we'll kind of pick up a real off. Yes.
1: yes, yes, Daniel, and, and, and you're right. Um, 1807 changed the entire dynamics of the plantation life in the british caribbean because it was quite clear by 1807 that what the politicians the refiners um the humanitarians what they wanted in britain um was not what the the hired hands what they wanted like in jamaica and so you could see um that that abolition in a sense um, had political implications, had economic implications, had social implications, right? And that's why I looked on the issue of management. Because in, in reality, um, that um, owners and hired hands differ. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. For example, okay, so an owner in England um hires an attorney, a prominent attorney to run his plantation. But he's not even there because he might have 15 other plantations to run. So he depends now on his overseer. But guess what? The overseer as well also probably he has around two or three plantations himself to run. So who does that run in the plantations? The bookkeeper who is there. And I found this very interesting um, um story um, where the bookkeeper, one bookkeeper on a plantation, what he was doing, he was stealing sugar at nights. So he had this enslaved um, Africans taking away sugar from the plantation at night to, to his own plantation. And as I made the point, the point, um, and this, this same person who will say, um, when he's sending um, overseas of the account, he will say, This year we only made. A hundred hogshead of sugar. He probably stole about half and half of it. <laughs> now, there's no way for the owner to really know that all he made was really a hundred. And so, these guys, in a sense, now were actually milking the plantation because they had their own interests, right? Another popular case again um, about the Goldburn. The Goldburns are probably well known um, in England. Um, this particular um, Goldburn owner, his brother, came to Jamaica uh, as, a, as a soldier and decided to go and visit his brother's plantation, Amity Hall. When the brother visited the plantation um, in Clarendon, Amity Hall, and he wrote back to his brother and said, Oh my God, what the attorney and overseer, what I've been telling you is a complete lie. Um, the brother, the owner, fired... The attorney the same time so for the last 15 years or so this particular attorney i've been telling the brother a lie right and it was when his brother came to jamaica and saw the reality and at the point i'm making there that that when we are discussing the abolition of the slave of the slave trade and its impact in the british caribbean yes we know that there were economic forces yes we know that there are humanitarian forces Yes, we know that there were also rebellions from below, um, human agency, but we must also highlight the role that managers played in their own demise. And that's a point I'm making, um, that when you look at the commercial management structure, systems that were not in place. A good example again, I would argue, um, to the contrary now, is the world park plantations. Of the 20 plantations that I actually looked at, Worthy Park was the only one that ha- had um, a, 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 a stable level of of um, productivity. Of course, it was declining, but declining slowly in contrast to other plantations that were um, declining rapidly. Worthy Park um stayed stable for most of the times and why? Because its young owner um, decided that he was he would spend a few years in Jamaica to see what his plantation was about and to learn about plantation business in Jamaica. Most of the owners did not do that, they were absentee the owners. Rose Price stayed in stayed in Rother Park for a period. So when he's back in Europe. And he hears something written by his attorney. He knows it's a lie. And so he was able now then, um, to better manage his plantation, because he, had, he knew what his circumstances were. And so you found that in that way, he was able um, to keep uh, his plantation productivity levels rather stable. Although you are still seeing pockets, small pockets of decline, in contrast to the other owners, and there are other reasons as well why Wertheper stayed uh, more buoyant than the other plantation owners. But the point I'm making is that we must, we must, we must um, look at the role of management in that critical period uh, between 1807 to 1838, and to see the role that the platter themselves played in hastening their own demise.
0: Yeah, and this is just kind of a quick question, I guess, because I was thinking about this a lot when I was reading your book, that um, do you think part of this is just almost um, a a business culture, if you want to call it that, um, of just utter neglect of enslaved workers and just total expectation of massive profits and entitlement towards huge fortunes that creates this... Maybe lethargy to want to adapt, or maybe even the attempt to be a good manager in the first place. Is it part of a culture, perhaps, in Jamaican management that causes this problem that you're identifying?
1: And and, it's, and it's, yes, and it, but it's debatable because, because you know, on the contrary, though, person um, such so the Higman, he has a different view. Um, he argues that the the planters were very progressive planters, right? Um, so um, you know, we can differ in that sense. But you are correct. It's a business culture. Because remember now, this is a period now. We, All right, we have one more interruption there. I
0: apologize, everybody. Um, sometimes the internet just is not compliant, but uh, that's okay. So uh, I'm just going to jump back into this question of uh, kind of the business culture. And so if you don't mind kind of maybe just starting again about uh, how maybe the business attitudes amongst the planters and the managers affected what happened at first.
1: Yeah. Yes, Daniel, you're correct. Um, it is a business culture. But we must also remember that that part of time period is a period when Europe in a sense is spreading its wings um into what we know term as the developing world. And so money and quick wealth is um is part of the culture. Okay? Others made in the past, we may, we need to make it now. And um there's a story I found where a father in England wrote to one of the richest planted in Jamaica, Simon Taylor, saying to him, Mr. Taylor, how can I get my son into that, into that culture? Simon Taylor says to him, um, let him come to Jamaica as a young man, let him buy one and two slaves, um, then he were those slaves, enslaved Africans, then he buys two or three more slaves, he can get a job on the plantation um, at a bookkeeper or, or lesser lesser management um, staff, then he climb the rank the of the of the, the ranks and then he can become a plantation owner and all that. So the point I'm making then that it was a culture at that time period. That the Caribbean um, that was um, where our elder the Eldorado was, the period of wealth recreation. So when abolition occurred. You could see why for many um, younger hired hands in Jamaica, you could understand why for them it was a threat. So so as far as they were concerned, um, they weren't here to make their their wealth as those in the past. And so you could see where management um, ideology now is being divided. Uh, But it's part of the general business culture in that part of the period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's
0: talk uh, uh, just about the enslaved workers. And then I want to see if you have a couple of uh, other quick points about your book that we didn't quite get to. Um, So could you just say a little bit about um, what all of this does to the enslaved themselves? Because you're talking about, obviously, these managers who... Um, are either absent or just really don't care or are actually doubling down on their brutality against their enslaved laborers. And so do you get a sense about what is changing for um, enslaved Jamaicans after 1807?
1: Yeah, good good point. Uh, if you look at the level of rebellions between 1807 to 1838, you actually see them increasing, the larger rebellions. I mean, they are increasing. Um, you can actually track it. You'll see... Um, that as the brutality increases, the levels of outward rebellion also um, increases in magnitude, okay, and also in numbers. But you're also seeing as well that there are also, also more enslaved Africans running away from the plantation on a daily basis as brutality increases. And one of the points made by some historians is that the reason... You are uh, one of the reasons you had like the um Sam rebellion, um, and the one in Babylon, the Busa one, and the one in Guyana, um, the one in Burbies, the, Mar- the Marara rebellion as major rebellions because by this time now, even some of the trusted confidential slaves, such as, um, say, um, the um, the drivers the elite enslaved Africans joined their fellow enslaved people in leading those rebellions. So you could see that the brutality in that time period to make more money um, and not to comply with amelioration rules set by England, how that in itself um, conspired to bring the system down in that, in that instance. So it's real. Um, even for women, even for pregnant women, Um, Because part of the the argument that many of these hired hands made was that in reality you can't ameliorate enslaved people because they they are idle, they need to work. Um, If they don't work, they're going to become idle, and if they become idle, they're going to um, do bad things. So you could see the impact it had on the enslaved people. In terms of your latter question, um, there are two important things that I also found in the book, which I I didn't know um, about slavery, and I hope that it helped. In understanding more about slavery. For example, number, the first one is the idea of procuring adequate labor. Even when a plantation says it has 300 enslaved Africans on its list, what I found that technically, usually, after 1807, around 30% of those persons were actually um, healthy. If you look at plantation lists after 1807, many of them. They, will, they are now showing, and I guess part of it is part of the brutality, um, you, are, you are seeing now where they are dividing the list. They will say, um, they call a name and they'll say, this person is healthy, this person is able, this person is weak, this person is disabled. So numerical strength, um, in a sense now, does not equate to relative strength. So when a, when, a owner, when, a, when a hired hand says to his owner in England, oh, we have 200 enslaved Africans. The reality is only 30% of his probably, um 200 enslaved people are really healthy. And that's why sometimes the, the owners in England couldn't understand But if I have 200 enslaved Africans or 300, why am I not producing more sugar? <laughs> Part of it is that Um, Many of the enslaved persons are unhealthy, (laughs) are are sick, and so productive levels are dropping. I also found as well that in that time period now then, after 1807, persons who are now selling enslaved Africans locally are what we call marrying them. Meaning, for example, and probably this is a Caribbean thing, that, um, for example, if you want to buy my 20 of my slaves, healthy ones you must also take um 10 bad ones 10 un- unhealthy ones so uh, rather so you can't come and buy 20 of my 30 you have to take all 30 okay and in that 30 that the, the person um, is taking probably only a half are really healthy so this issue of numbers in a sense now um this own problems for managers um, because they are not understanding um, that even when you pad the plantation with more persons that you are acquiring and you are paying much more money for these persons, many times only 30% of your enslaved um, persons are healthy. And if, they are, if, if your majority of enslaved people are unhealthy, your productivity levels cannot increase. And that was the, the, part of the problem managers recognize. Um, at that time, um, because the reality was that the, the, the hired hands never cared about their health and their overall well-being. They cared about pushing them to the maximum to maximize as much profits as possible.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was just the ways in which you showed uh, the, the attempt at... But the lack of attempts of addressing these issues by the managers creates these tremendous problems on the plantation. And it really exacerbates the already kind of precarious state of the Jamaican economy to begin with. Um, before we get going, I just wonder, uh, you've had this book out for a little bit, and um, I'm wondering what your next uh, project is. Do you want to stay in this period of time, or are you moving on to a sort of different chronology? Uh,
1: interesting question, Daniel. I I, I want to stay in this time period. And I want to do a sequel um, to 18, post-1838, but not right now. What I'm working on right now, um, I'm changing a little bit to something I wanted to do much earlier. All right? I am looking on missionaries um, and their contribution to the development of colonial Jamaica. Um, I have some missionary papers from um, it's uh, um, the, the church I am, I am associated with. Um, it's called Church of God in Anderson, Indiana, and they sent missionaries to Jamaica, um, and they were here for a long time. Um, I have their papers, um, so I'm combing through their papers. Um, so I, I hope that I can write something um, short about um, the missionary impact um in um colonial Jamaica. Um, that's what I'm working on right now. But I also want to do a sequel to abolition and plantation management a later on. Um, also I also did some work um for a conference in Cuba on the slave trade. Um the illegal slave trade. Um okay you're there when I did that paper. Um so 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 I have a number of things I'm trying to do. Uh, but I think my next book would be on missionaries and um, the, their particular role in shaping ideas um, in colonial Jamaica. Then I return um, to my, my love, <laughs> I'm looking at um, plantation life post-1838 um, and seeing if I could still trace the role of management. Um in um in its continuance um, post-1838 well those all sound
0: great it sounds like uh, you've got some work cut out for you <laughs> the next a, lot, year. a lot
1: of work, <laughs> a lot of work.
0: Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed speaking with you and thanks so much for taking time to talk about your book and uh, yes. I hope people get a chance to read it thank you for the link up and I appreciate it